0: In the account given to us in Genesis, Adam and Eve failed to carry out God's instructions and were effectively written off by him. God's second attempt at populating the planet revolved around Noah and his family, but now, several generations on from the legendary ark builder, Earth's people appear to be yet another disappointment to him. It is then that he spots a Mesopotamian farmer called Abram who is descended from Shem, and shares his future plans with him. Mesopotamia's geographical reach forms a broad swathe from Lebanon on the northeastern coast of the Mediterranean right down to the Persian Gulf. It is the Mesopotamian city of Ur that Abraham calls home until his father decides to move his family 1,000 miles to the land of Canaan. The old man takes Abraham and his wife Sarai with him on his journey west. Abraham's brother died while they were still in Mesopotamia, and so he brings his nephew Lot with him as a kind of adopted son. Readers are told that Sarai is unable to have children. However, the family stops in the region of Haran, on the border of modern-day Syria and Turkey, and rather than continue on to Canaan, they settle here instead. Abraham does not pray to God, nor does he appear to be at all religious. But when he is 75 years old, The book describes how God tells him to take his entire household to a new country. He promises Abram that he will make him into a great nation, that he will protect him and that all people on earth will benefit because of him. Like some kind of Superman or Jedi Knight, whoever Abram blesses will thrive and whoever he curses will fail. To his credit, Abram doesn't put the experience down to something he's eaten or simple old age. Instead, he believes that God really has spoken to him, packs up Sarai, Lot, and all their animals and staff, and sets off into the unknown. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, Episode 4, The Sister Wife. Before we begin, I'm not a theologian or priest, I'm an advertising creative director. The thinking is that the Bible underpins three world religions, making it a book with a lot to sell. All quotes are taken from the New International Version, UK edition of the Bible, and I would warn you that you will not be told what to think. This is the Bible minus the religion, the story minus the spirituality. So, back to Abram and Sarai's journey. Abram's destination is Canaan. This is the place his father was aiming for when he stopped and settled prematurely in Haran. Canaan is the country which will eventually be known as Israel. In fact, when Abram reaches the town of Shechem, God tells him that he will give the land to his offspring. No doubt delighted at the good news for his family, Abram builds God an altar. From Shechem, The family travels to Bethel, where Abram sets up another altar before continuing on to the Negev. He remains here until a famine leads him further south to find food in Egypt. Little else is known about Abram, but he's not a poor man. He will have had over 300 men on his staff at the time of the move west, and Lot will also have had a retinue of his own. Before the family heads south to Egypt, Abram hits on a plan that he believes will improve his own personal security. He knows that Sarai is an attractive woman and worries that jealous Egyptians might harm him and steal his wife if they think that they are married. Instead, Sarai is to pose as his sister. Any locals hoping to marry her will then have to be especially nice to Abram. Besides, it's not a complete lie, as Sarai is actually Abram's half-sister. They share a father, Terah, but have different mothers. It's a genius idea, and only fails when advisors to Egypt's pharaoh realise that Sarai is quite a catch. The love-struck king starts lavishing gifts of livestock and servants on Abram, buttering him up to get to her. Before she knows it, Sarai finds herself spirited away to a foreign harem, And, according to Genesis, the affair only ends when God intervenes. Plagues rain down on Pharaoh's household, suggesting that he has crossed a line. He is incredulous at Abram's ploy. It's an awkward moment, as Abram is handed back his wife and sent home to Canaan before any more calamities come Pharaoh's way. Some readers may find it hard to picture a woman of 65 having exceptional physical beauty. The actual word used to describe Sarai is fair, and her light skin will have made her stand out in Egypt. Given that she is 127 when she dies, she's only middle aged at the time, and perhaps not having children has helped her maintain her youthful looks. Abraham's first move after leaving Egypt is to reconnect with God. The return to Canaan is an unexpected one, and he currently has no plan. Lot has been with Abram and Sarai throughout their Egyptian adventure and uses the eviction as an opportunity to split away. The men have prospered hugely in Egypt and have so much livestock that they now need their own space. There is a suggestion that Lot is less interested in Abram's god and has only stuck with his uncle and aunt until now for family and economic reasons. Besides, the two men's herdsmen are squabbling, and Abram agrees that it might be a good time to separate. Dazzled by the goodies the land has to offer near the city of Sodom, Lot settles here, but it's not a great choice. Pitching his tent so close to a place that is already famous for its moral depravity is flirting with temptation, and now he no longer has his uncle Abram nearby to protect him. Meanwhile, Abraham hears God promising him and his descendants a vast territory. According to the message, all the land that he can see will belong to him and his people forever. Confident that all will be well, a state of mind which the Bible describes as faith, Abraham settles near Hebron, where he builds God yet another altar. Lot's choice of city proves to be an inauspicious one when a local warlord begins flexing his muscles. Sodom is one of five kingdoms in the Dead Sea Valley that have spent the past 13 years being oppressed by Kidor Laoma, king of Elam and three other nations who are allied to him. Finally, the beleaguered kingdoms rebel, though what form the rebellion takes is unclear. Keen to flex his muscles, Kidor Laoma and his allies go on the attack again. They conquer territory as far as the border with Egypt, defeating tribes whose names reappear during Moses' conquests en route to Canaan centuries later. The war-hungry kings then return to the area around the Dead Sea and decimate land belonging to the Amalekites and Amorites. They overrun the oasis later known as Engedi, at which point the king of Sodom and his cohorts make the reckless decision to enter a full-on war against their enemies. The armies draw up battle lines, but even as part of a coalition of five kings fighting a coalition of four, victory is no certainty. The rebellion is a disaster. While fleeing the battle, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah become bogged down in some nearby tar pits. Their food and other goods are carried away by gloating enemies, and with their city undefended, prisoners are taken. Alarmingly for Abram, Lot is one of the people who is dragged away. Abraham immediately pulls together a fighting force of 318 men, splits them into two groups and ambushes the troops who raided Sodom. The attack is a success and Lot, his possessions and all the other captives are brought safely home. It may be a victory, but it's an embarrassing moment for Lot, who has now become an unnecessary burden on his uncle. After his success against the king of Elam, Abraham is visited by the grateful king of Sodom. The king brings with him a priest, a man named Melchizedek. Melchizedek manages to believe in God without there being any kind of organised religion in place, a rare faith that he shares with Abram. In fact, he is described by Genesis as a priest of God, as well as being the king of Salem. After the battle in which Abraham rescues his captured nephew, Melchizedek arrives with bread and wine and blesses Abraham, reminding him that it is God who has given him the victory. Melchizedek remains one of the Bible's most mysterious characters. Appearing to have no father nor mother and with a reign that lasts forever, he is seen by many as a kind of proto-Jesus. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, Jesus is described as a priest in the order of Melchizedek possibly because both men appear to be fully human and historical rather than angelic or mythological. Melchizedek is the first person in the Bible to be described as a priest, but as for exactly who this strange yet zealous God-fearing pagan might have been, readers are left with more questions than answers. In gratitude to God and for the prompt from Melchizedek, Abram gives his fantastical priest-king a tenth of all the loot from the battle. It is customary at the time for anyone who recovers people and possessions from a raid to hand back the rescued prisoners keeping the treasure for themselves. Assuming that this is what Abraham expects, the grateful king of Sodom wants him to simply return his people but to keep the goods he has recovered. Abram refuses in case the king ever boasts that he made Abraham rich and he only accepts food and a share of the spoils for the men who fought with him. Once order has been returned to Sodom, God makes Abram a promise which ranks as one of the greatest in the Bible. This is Abram's first encounter with God since his return from Egypt. Being childless, Abram has no one to pass his wealth on to. Assuming that God intends to enrich him financially, he assures him that he has no need of remuneration. Besides, if he can raise a private army of over 300 men, he's clearly quite wealthy already and he tells God that he has earmarked one of his servants to be his heir. God explains that the servant will not inherit Abram's money. Instead, the inheritance will pass to Abram's own son. He then leads the old man outside and asks him to look up at the night sky and count the stars. This is how many descendants he will have. God promises him. The most incredible thing about the story is that Abraham believes God. Even if Sarai were able to conceive, she is well beyond childbearing age. It's no wonder that Abraham is held up by Jews, Christians and Muslims as a peon of faith ready to believe what seems to be impossible simply because God tells him that it is true. This is a huge moment in the Bible. God has found his first proper believer since Noah, and he describes Abraham's simple and sudden act of belief as righteousness. This is a word which recurs multiple times in both the Old and New Testaments. It suggests having belief in God and a focus on living in a way that is pleasing to him. A less religious word that conveys a similar meaning is upright. God chooses the moment to tell Abraham that it was he who was behind the journey from Mesopotamia and that his plan is to give him the land of Canaan for his descendants to settle in. Abraham wants to be sure that this is a genuine promise, and is told to fetch a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. These are the forerunners of the animals, later offered up by the Jews as sacrifices to God in the tabernacle and the temple. Abraham cuts up the meat and fights off wild birds who want to pick at the carcasses. As the sun sets, he falls into a deep sleep, which Genesis describes as a thick and dreadful darkness coming over him. The mood has changed. God tells Abraham that his descendants will live for four centuries in a land that isn't theirs, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated. It's not all bad news, however. They will not only survive their ordeal, but will come out of it with plenty of possessions. Abraham himself will live in peace and attain a ripe old age and after the 400 years has passed, his people will return here to Canaan. By then, the sin of the local tribes will have reached a critical mass, God tells him, suggesting that they will eventually be replaced by Abram's descendants. These local tribes are the distant offspring of Noah's son Ham and the stage is now set for Ham's people to be emphatically replaced by Abram's. For mocking his old man's drunkenness centuries earlier, Ham unwittingly ushered in events that will land catastrophically on his family centuries later. Once Abraham has woken up, the sun has set, but the visions continue. a smoking firepot appears before him, and a flame snakes between the pieces of sacrificial meat that have been arranged on the griddle. It's unclear what this symbolizes, but it might be that by burning the meat offered up by Abraham. God is acknowledging that they have an agreement, a kind of divine signature. God then shows Abraham the exact boundaries of the land that his descendants will call home, as well as the nations they will destroy in order to claim it. It's an eye opener for the old man who has officially become the first Jew, but fortunately, it's one that leaves him more enthused than overwhelmed. God may have promised Abraham a son. But his wife knows that the laws of science are most certainly against them. However, if God wants Abram to be a father, Sarai is not going to stand in the way. Knowing that she cannot possibly be the mother, she sets about procuring a child in the most practical way she knows and suggests that her husband sleep with her Egyptian servant Hagar. Now carrying the hope of both Abram and Sarai, Hagar's attitude changes from submissive servant to prima donna. She begins to detest Sarai, who she perhaps now sees as her rival rather than her mistress. Her attitude is a slap in the face to Sarai and leads to a major falling out. The end result of this is that Sarai makes life so unpleasant for Hagar that her former slave runs away. According to the Genesis account, God's angel finds Hagar out in the desert. Here he reassures her that her descendants will be every bit as numerous as Sarai's, advising her to go back and make peace. The angel tells Hagar that the child she is carrying is a son. He will be a wild donkey of a man, who she will call Ishmael, which means God hears. Hagar is told that God knows all about her situation, but the future doesn't appear to be ideal for her child. He will fight with his brothers, and will live in perpetual strife with everyone. Still, Hagar doesn't appear to be fazed by the news, and seems pleased that God has taken an interest in her life. She describes him as the God who sees me, and dedicates the well where she meets the angel to the encounter. Abram is 86 years old when his and Hagar's son is born, and in line with God's instructions, he names him Ishmael. 13 years later, God appears to Abraham again, and he reminds him that if he follows him and continues to live a blameless life, he will be rewarded with a constellation of descendants. Now 99, Abraham falls to the ground in gratitude and awe. God promises him that he will become the father of many nations, and that his name should no longer be Abram, but Abraham, which means father of many. God shares with him that his descendants will become nations and that some will be kings. This covenant between God and Abraham's family will last forever, he is told. The land of Canaan will be theirs in perpetuity and God will be their God. At almost 100 years old, Abraham still hasn't produced the son and heir promised by God. His wife was unable to bear children even when she was much younger and now she is well into her 70s. The weight of expectation is huge. Aside from one mysterious priest-king, Abraham and Sarai are the only believers in God on the planet. Like a replacement Adam and Eve, Their sole job is to repopulate earth with people who share the same faith in God that they have. Together, this ancient couple begin their faltering journey into immortality. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please send any comments and feedback to contact at holybible.com.